Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about housing in Los Angeles, told from the perspective of residents, activists, artists, and city officials. I'm your host, Sue Bellier. This week, we investigate the affordability crisis of housing in Los Angeles, the policies and trends that have led to skyrocketing rents and home prices, and tens of thousands of Angelinos falling into homelessness for the first time. As a white guy who moved here from somewhere else, yeah. uh, trying to figure out a way to live here basically without hurting anyone. And you accumulate a lot of guilt uh, over time, like being in that situation. And it was kind of a cathartic experience for me to say like, well, any system that doesn't allow you to occupy space in the city without hurting somebody else is is wrong. You can't, I mean, there's no ethical consumption in the LA real estate market. That's Hayes Davenport, a friend of mine and a housing activist and writer here in Los Angeles. We'll hear more from him later. But I want to take up this question of why, as he proposes, it's impossible to ethically participate in LA real estate. Well, we might start with how property values seem unmoored from any concept of reality. In other words, the market is bananas right now. The fair market rent for the L.A. County area, which is calculated by the federal government, is higher than 99% of other fair market rent areas, making a two-bedroom $1,663 per month. Though in many areas of L.A., that would actually be a steal. Buying a house is increasingly out of reach for most people. Which raises the question, what is going so wrong when it comes to housing? Why is it so hard to find affordable housing, especially in cities? From a market standpoint, it stands to reason that more housing equals lower price points, and less, more scarce housing leads to higher costs, a simple supply and demand problem within a capitalist economy. But housing doesn't work that way. There are over 58,000 homeless people in the county, according to the 2019 Homeless Count. And nearly a quarter of those unsheltered adults reported losing their housing in 2018 and are experiencing homelessness for the first time. Housing is not optional. And because we live in a free society, we can't regulate the movements of people so that certain geographic areas can only handle certain numbers of people. This is something that places like China do. But we can't just shut the door. So what are our values as a society when it comes to housing? Here's eviction defense lawyer Jennifer Ganada. The thing is, we have to have a larger conversation about what do we, what do we think people deserve in terms of housing? Like, why don't we see housing as a human right? Like, why are we okay with 58,000 people in the county being homeless. And like, that's the number, and the number is gonna be growing. And it's weird to have this conversation about homelessness prevention or fighting evictions without talking about like, well, maybe the system of capitalism doesn't really work, and we should probably think of something else. Building more housing cannot be treated as the core of the conversation, as the center of conversation. That can be a tool that gets checked against the center of it, which should be equitable housing for everyone as a human right and 
as a component to resolving having a whole lot of people, for instance. But once if we're clear what is the priority, what we are building around, then we can't help but ask what kind of housing is being built. That's Hike Makmarian, a Glendale-based housing activist who runs a nonprofit art space downtown. Maybe as housing advocates, as people who are interested in this, um, there should be a few, like a few points. You know, we kind of like uh, one of the things that I offer that I thought I think is important is just from the beginning talk about housing as a human right. This mm-hmm. always hammer it in. You know, is this a perspective we're looking at? Because if it's not, I'm not interested to have that conversation. And maybe the other one is should be. Um, how is uh, our resources being allocated in terms of our decisions as society about what's important? And yeah. if we're not at least considering that shift, uh, then maybe I don't want to have that conversation either. <laughs> uh, because again, it's it is then the dangerous that we go right into the nitty gritty of mm. like, oh, but if we move this, then this is gonna fall, then this is gonna. Yes, but we're talking only within this one little circle of uh, money for development and how poor developers get this cut and where spot. Yes. The problem is, even if you think that housing can be solved by simply building more housing, increasing supply to meet the demand, and thereby stabilizing housing prices, this is totally thrown off by global real estate investment and speculation. Housing is no longer something that is responsive to local needs. Another, I think, issue is just the amount of money globally that's invested into real estate. Here's Betty Medin, a housing advocate and tenants' rights activist. I feel like that's a huge thing, uh, both in terms of who's coming into the city, who's buying property, and also the fact that our city government is largely friends with with developers who aren't always concerned with preserving affordable housing or building new affordable housing. We hear terms like real estate speculation and the global housing market, but how does this contribute to what some are calling a global housing crisis? Because it has become clear over the last few decades that housing as a financial investment in a capitalist system is making it harder and harder for people to find affordable housing options in cities like L.A. Richard Florida and Benjamin Schneider of City Lab call this a, quote, fundamental paradox of contemporary capitalism, and they explain it like this. Quote, cities around the world are more economically powerful and essential than ever. This creates tremendous demand for their land, leading to escalating housing costs and competition. Meanwhile, housing has been financialized and turned into an investment vehicle, which has caused an oversupply of luxury housing and a lack of affordable housing in many cities across the world. The global housing crisis is defined by a chronic shortage of housing for the least advantaged, and in many cases for the working and middle classes as well. On a 2017 chart provided by data from Demographia, Los Angeles ranks fifth on a global housing unaffordability scale, just under Hong Kong, Sydney, Vancouver, and Melbourne, and just above San Francisco and London. They calculated this based on a metric called a median multiple, which is the ratio of median housing costs to median incomes. According to this standard, 
Los Angeles is actually the most unaffordable city in the country. Why is this the case? Well, it's because housing is being used as an investment for the uber-rich in major global cities, rather than actually being lived in. Housing and real estate, in other words, is like currency. And as a result, housing markets are more susceptible to global economic forces than what is actually happening locally. Yeah, uh, let me think about that a little bit. I've heard many times uh, in public testimony from people that are advocating for some aspect of either change or preservation, but live outside the city. Mm-hmm. And so they, you're right, there is this connection to the past. That's Peter James, a city planner in the Santa Monica city government. In many ways, due to its beachside location and influx of tech dollars into what is now being called Silicon Beach, Santa Monica is at the extreme end of post-gentrification. In terms of housing costs, it is already far down the road where the rest of L.A. County is headed. Yet, as we covered in Episode 1 about redlining, it has an extremely diverse population, though getting whiter in recent years and its residents have complicated feelings about how the city continues to change. City planners, like Peter, must balance the needs of these shifting populations. Um, Even last night at the city council meeting, uh, we had a very impassioned speaker that was telling the council to authorize us to do a comprehensive community-based planning effort to improve the Pico neighborhood. And when she was asked by a council member, do you live here? She said, no, I grew up here, but I live right outside because I can't afford to find an apartment here. And and I think that is kind of embedded in the DNA of a lot of long-term Santa Monicans. An interesting statistic about the city is that somewhere between 64 and 70% of all people that live here are renters. So it's not the model where homeowners drive the decision-making. They feel a connection to place. They may not own it, but they recognize that something special is happening here. And so they're willing to come from wherever they live now to advocate for a betterment to the city. The housing crisis is real. Um, Just have to look at the rents and the for sale prices. I don't think you can find anything in the city for less than 1.4. Yeah, good luck. And then uh, we just did a study on the downtown to find out what they're charging for market rate rents, and it's close to 5,000 bucks a month for a two-bedroom. So that's a real challenge. Every city is required to have a general plan, um, and the general plan, you think of it as a book, and within the book are chapters. And so every city has a general plan, but the chapters might be different. Uh, Santa Monica, which is a an overachieving government, has more chapters than most. But there's some basic ones that everyone's required to have, like land use, circulation, noise, safety, uh, things of of that nature. And where does that requirement come from? Is that from the state or 
It comes from the governor's office of planning and research. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a way that they can, all these things are connected. Um, you know, there, there is planning at the municipal level, then there's planning at the state level and there's planning at the federal level. And all it equates to is different levels of zoom and then how you do it. So at the local level, we have a lot of control to say, move that building back five feet at the state level. They're like, we need to have 5,000 new people live in your city. We don't care how you do it. You just have to do it. And if you don't do it, we're not going to give you your transportation dollars to repave your streets. So there's a lot of that happening, which I think is something that the general public doesn't quite understand or appreciate. And we're always asked this question, why do we have to accommodate more? It's a valid question. Um, And the answer is because we all share the responsibility. Activity, we take a lot longer because our process is pretty gnarly. Um, in terms of outreach and consensus building, but uh, we are obligated to take on the challenges of the future alongside everybody else in California. So, for example, like you know, LA County has seen an enormous influx of people right, right over the past ten years or so, and so is that something that the state takes and kind of breaks down and says, yeah, according to this data, your city is going to see this many more people and you need to accommodate this much more housing? Does it kind of work like that? It does. There's a report that's published. It's called the Regional Housing Needs Assessment. Um, Shorthand on that is the RENA. And the RENA um, comes out every five years and it tells every city how much new housing they are required to accommodate. LA's number is 100,000. Our number is closer to 2,000. Beverly Hills number is three. So it's, it, it, what it is, it, it is based on past success as well. The state, just looking at those three examples, uh, the state knows Beverly Hills is not in the business of building denser. That's not what they do. And they never have. So the state doesn't say, doesn't put that obligation on them. We in Santa Monica have been adding housing units to our downtown for 20 years. And so, and in other places. And so the state looks at that and in a way, you know, punishes us for our success. That number gets higher and higher every time the arena comes out. And it's that number that uh, tends to make the folks that have been here for a long time with this nostalgic view of Santa Monica bristle a little bit. Deploying resources and, and even having the conversation about how to do these things, I think is something that is not as straightforward as the residents really want. They just want to stop development. Some of them do stop development, build the wall around the city. We've heard that several times, even from people that just got here. Last person in, shut the door. Just like don't let new people move into the city. Yeah. We're full. (laughs) We're full. And you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a negative reaction to that. I think that, their perception is their perception and it's definitely busier now than it was when they got here six years ago or whenever. Um, and those people that have been here for 50 years, this is a different place, but the world is a different place. Uh, so, you know, we're just trying to make sure that people have access to the resources they need, um, and can live their lives the best that they possibly can. 
Cities are meant to attract people, even though they must live closely together. Cities have economic and cultural opportunity that abound because of their density. But in Los Angeles, the question of how dense a city should be has always been a battleground. In a city built for cars, with a century-old height limit restriction, and collections of vast suburban subdivisions created in LA's boom years of the late 1800s, the sprawling landscape has always attracted new arrivals searching for the California dream. Single-story homes on plots of land with gardens, a parking spot, and maybe a pool, but certainly with lots of sunshine free from the shadows of tall buildings. If you can get that, and the cultural and economic opportunities that make cities so attractive in the first place, it's like having your cake and eating it too. This way of life has been fiercely defended by slow-growth advocates, sometimes called NIMBYs, for not in my backyard, who would, as Peter James put it, like nothing more than to shut the door on new waves of LA arrivals after they have secured their own plot of land. But of course, we are seeing now that this long-held version of the LA dream is just not sustainable in the long run. Density is an important part of the housing puzzle. When you need more housing in any geographic area, your only choice is to make that area more dense. The other argument I think that gets overlooked a lot in between the supply and demand stuff and the the economic system is I personally uh, believe that density is a public good. That's Hayes Davenport, a comedy writer, housing activist, and the host of LA Podcast. Uh, I think people should be able to live where they work. Uh, I think uh, the the easier people can walk or take transit uh, around their neighborhoods, the better. I have been really encouraged just over the last year uh, at how, for example, Senate Bill 827 that would have raised height limits around transit, allowed more dense building around transit. SB 827 would have allowed the construction of apartment buildings up to five stories tall near every high-frequency mass transit stop in the state. Senator Scott Weiner and supporters of the bill, who called themselves YIMBYs for Yes in My Backyard, argued that it was the best way to both ease housing affordability in cities like San Francisco and help the state hit its ambitious environmental goals. This is, I mean, not something that you would expect to generate a huge response and like, you know, to have like everyone in the city be talking about it. Not everyone in the city, but for it to be like, it's not a sexy idea, like raising height like limits around. Like a, duh, like, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But it was hugely contra- uh, yeah. hugely controversial. Um, there was a, a, a ton of debate about it. Uh, by the time it even got to committee, it was like radioactive, basically, mm. um, because there were lots of people who dissented on both sides. There were the, what you'd expect, the people who uh, live in single-family neighborhoods who were worried about their views or lines at the grocery store, all the, you know, things like that. Parking, of course. Uh, although, yeah, because parking requirements were going to be relaxed in these buildings, and so people are, where are the cars going to go? Um, 
And then there were lots of people coming from uh, the low-income neighborhoods where a lot of this housing was going to go along transit and saying, well, all the new construction here is going to be market rate. It's going to be like more expensive condos. Uh, it's going to make this neighborhood less affordable for me. It's going to cause mass displacement. Uh, and so they were fine-tuning it, try, trying to come to uh, an, an agreement over what the bill should be. But by the time it got to committee, uh, it was already it was too hot. And yeah. so the, it did not get out of committee. It might come back next year. But I honestly think it's encouraging just that it's something that so many people were talking about. And there seems to be general consensus, at least people claim to believe this, that, uh, that there is a problem that needs to be solved. SB 827 did indeed return in 2019 as SB 50, reworked to allow more tenants' rights protections and definitions around affordable housing. But it still failed. With these bills, Wiener was grabbing with both hands the electrified third rail of housing in this country. NIMBY groups in opposition were desperately trying to prevent more density in their neighborhoods, while affordable housing and tenants' rights advocates feared the gentrifying forces of more market-rate housing. A legislative committee led by Anthony Portentino blocked the bill and led to its demise again. But opposition was not as broad as it once was, and the majority of Californians polled, 61%, supported the basic premise of the bill. Most people seem to agree. Something's gotta give. But I know when we were looking at places, different real estate agents would be showing a house and then say in these kind of hushed tones, like, now the unit next door, the, the lot next door is zoned R2. It's currently a house, but at some point there could be multifamily <laughs> housing on yeah. it. Where it was like something that you're supposed to be scared of. Yeah. When yeah, it's like, like, we live in Los Angeles. It's a giant, it's a mega city. Right. I mean, I don't, I you know, I don't believe this illusion uh, that we're all living in, like a collection of, of suburbs. Environmental justice, transit, traffic. A lot of the issues Angelinos struggle with would be helped by more density. But there is a lot of disagreement around what that density should look like, and skepticism on the part of housing activists that more housing would actually help alleviate this crisis. So in many of these battles, you start to see strange bedfellows. Tenants' rights activists concerned about displacement and gentrification teaming up with NIMBYs and wealthy slow-growth advocates. And public housing advocates, labor unions, and homeless rights activists allying with profit-driven developers. The fierce campaigns around 2017's Ballot Measure S was a perfect example of these uneasy alliances. Measure S proposed a two-year moratorium on development projects that needed a zone change, height district change, or general plan amendment. It would make it much harder to build taller buildings or to change the city planning rules to accommodate single projects. You couldn't, for example build a residential tower on a lot zoned for industrial use. 
On the yes side, of course, these restrictions appealed to NIMBYs and slow growth advocates concerned about their property values, parking, and a change to the character and density of their neighborhoods. Tenants' rights activists were concerned that some of these developments requiring general plan amendments and spot zoning would result in the loss of rent-stabilized units to be replaced by luxury housing. They also argued that S would force the city to update the outdated community plans, which do not allow for enough density and are not properly zoned to deal with the current housing and affordability crisis. They believe much more affordable housing is needed now and that market rate, or unaffordable housing, should not be used to subsidize affordable housing. That market rate housing would only exacerbate the gentrification that is already happening in low-income neighborhoods. So they were okay with 100% affordable housing exemptions provided by S. The no side argued that this measure would needlessly slow down new construction and that we urgently need new housing now. Community plans take years, they argued, and this would severely affect the amount of new housing stock and particularly new construction and permanent supportive housing for the homeless. Many of these would require spot zoning, and they don't all necessarily fall under the narrow definition of 100% affordable housing. They pointed out that most developments, including affordable housing, are not 100% affordable units. They are more like 20%, with the other 80% being market rate housing. So the effect would be that a lot of affordable housing would not be built as a result. These nuances are important. Many of the activists I spoke to want the same thing, but disagree fundamentally on how best to get there. The things that we have to continue to do is like preserve the housing stock that we have that is low income or um, you know naturally occurring affordable housing. But we also we do need just housing that is affordable. But nobody's building that. That's the thing that sucks. It's just like everything that people are building. You're looking. I, mean, I don't know. These probably these units over here are going to be like three thousand dollars. Who's going to afford that? It doesn't have to be that way because the market fluctuated. The problem is we can't like drive it down. We can only drive it up, we just can't drive it down. And I just, there are, I've spoken to some planners in the city and they, like, there are some planners who do believe in that. Like, you just have a glut of housing and of course that will drive it down. And I was like, but in what, like, we need housing now. We need, like, affordable housing now. We don't need market rate units to be built. But then I've been told it's like there is no incentive in the public good. I think that part of the problem is Again, what we were talking about with how affordable housing is defined. So that's where people, I think, get confused is because when they see somebody who's resisting new developments, they see it as somebody who's rejecting you know, new housing while new housing is needed. But I feel like what we're rejecting is housing that's actually not going to meet the need for the people who are most vulnerable and for the people who need affordable housing the most. And so I feel like that's where the the dividing line is, and that's where the side I, I stand on, is if the housing we're building is actually addressing the need for housing by those who are, again, you know, lower income, very low income, people who are in, you know, precarious housing situations and are, aren't able to afford market rate housing, 
if there was a building that was prioritizing those people in a way that was actually realistic and looking at what's the need, what are the needs in that community, then I would be totally in support of that. But that's not the reality. I mean, the reality is that new developments, again, are often mostly created for market rate and have a small percentage, let's say 5 to 11%. So when you have a new development that's, you know, 80% market rate housing, it's not going to make an impact in a positive way. What it's going to do, it's going to contribute to the broader waves of gentrification that are already happening because it's only fitting into that context. And the small, you know, percentage of folks who might benefit, that impact isn't worth sort of adding to the already, like, very strong forces of gentrification that are already happening in that place. There are issues with the way affordable housing is currently set up that complicate it even more. The biggest one is that it's temporary. For example, a developer can get a tax credit for a certain number of years if they add a percentage of affordable units to their building. But after 15 to 20 years, those units can revert to market rate housing unless the landlord refinances or does something else to keep it affordable. For tenants' rights activists like the LA Tenants Union, this devil's bargain of affordable housing being subsidized by tax credits and market rate housing is unacceptable. Even those solutions where I'm just kind of like, well, it's still, I mean, it's still within the system of capitalism. So that's, it's difficult because you're, it's not forever. And it's also, you're allowing the private market to figure out a solution that should be like a public problem that we need to figure out that I don't think the private market is going to fix. What is the incentive there? Hayes was one of those progressive activists on the no side of the S debate. At the same time as we were kind of in the real estate market and I was, I was looking at uh, housing issues in general, there was a measure on the ballot in L.A. called Measure S. Uh, and what that was going to do was freeze housing construction for two years, including a lot of affordable housing uh, plans that had just been funded by a different uh, ballot measure. Um, it was basically going to make it so you can do a zone change, uh, and any affordable housing project requires a, a zone change because they don't build permanent supportive housing on like an existing apartment. You know, you don't you don't kick people out of an existing residential building to build permanent supportive housing. You convert a parking lot or an industrial area or right. something like that. Um, so that would have shut out a lot of those projects. And so that's what kind of, that was um, the political event that sort of activated me. I thought that was going to do more harm than uh, what was currently already being done. So I, I, I think my thinking was, let's stop this and then uh, figure out how to, how to start fixing the problem from there. Measure S ended up being defeated by a lot. Hayes contrasts this with other low-growth initiatives in the past, which have traditionally been very popular in L.A. There was one called Proposition U in the 80s to limit building height, um, which passed by a lot. And so I think, I don't know, maybe the city is, is changing in some way, welcoming in new construction. Uh, and now I think the, the goal is to try and stop that from being just uh, luxury condos or um, margarite housing. The housing crisis simply cannot be reduced to a model-free market system that responds to supply and demand. Why is this? Well, as we learned, it's because it's where rich people and corporations park their wealth globally. 
but it's also because of the forces behind our housing policies that sometimes have their own questionable agendas and sinister tactics. Hayes describes some of these forces. You mentioned housing is a human right. Uh, I... That's just something I've been hearing a lot. No, it's a, it's a great phrase. Yeah. And it has been appropriated by a group here. Look, lots of people working in the anti-development world, like the, like the LA Tenants Union, are working in extremely good faith. Like, this is a great organization. There are lots of NIMBYs who have appropriated the language of social justice to stop construction entirely. Um, and the guy that put up Measure S is is one of these people, Michael Weinstein. He has a group now called Housing as a Human Right, uh, which fought very hard against SBA 27. They're fighting for Costa-Hawkins repeal. Uh, he wants universal rent control, I believe, to fulfill the goals of Measure S and to basically limit new construction, which would be disincentivized by by universal rent control. Public housing, pro- or there are subsidized housing projects going up around LA all the time. There's one called Lorena Plaza uh, in Boyle Heights that has been planned for something like five years. They still haven't begun construction uh, because a neighboring business has been suing over and over again. It has had an incredibly hard time uh, getting built. So there are opportunities for social justice house- housing organizations to support public housing. But organizations like Housing as a Human Right are invisible on uh, public housing projects that need to be built because they don't actually want any new construction anywhere, even if it is subsidized housing. Fighting against market rate development is just a way to, to fight against new development in general. This is an example of the uneasy alliance between NIMBY groups and tenants' rights activists that voted yes on S, according to Hayes. I asked him, why did they fight new construction? Same reason any, 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 uh, any suburbanite fights new construction now. Uh, views, traffic, parking, uh, you know, trying to keep the resources that are currently available in the city to yourself. The, the rhetoric of the organization used to be, before they discovered uh, essentially socialist rhetoric, uh, like, we don't want to turn this into Manhattan, stop Manhattanizing Hollywood. It's just about preserving a specific way of life. This system is rife with bad actors. The system that we need is to protect people that are currently living here. You can you combine serious tenant protections with massive new housing proliferation. I think that's uh, that's the only way out of this. Another aspect of the housing crisis are several California laws that make it easier to convert truly affordable housing into housing that is unaffordable for most Angelinos, and particularly those who are low income, working class, and even middle class. Many of these laws make it easier for landowners to tear down rental units, evict tenants, and reap vast profits off of their land. So in LA, we have a rent stabilization ordinance that was came into law in 1978. We do not have 
what is true rent control. In true rent control, the new renter who comes into an apartment that's just been vacated would inherit the rent of the previous renter. So with vacancy decontrol, so you know, you stop controlling, you know, the change of tenant, the landowner, the building owner has the right to bring the rent up to whatever they want, you know, typical market rates. In Los Angeles, there's a major incentive for building owners to remove tenants who are currently paying below market rates. So let's break this down. Let's say John and James are renting a two-bedroom apartment in Hollywood in a rent-stabilized building for $1,600 a month. Good deal, actually. As long as they live there, their landlord can only raise the rent by 3% a year at most, which is about $48. They move out after three years and are now paying a little over $1,700. Their friends Julie and Jenny love their apartment and want to move in, but are astounded that the landlord has now jacked up the rent to $2,500 per month to keep pace with the rental units around it. There's no way they can afford that. That is vacancy decontrol. Maybe we could go a long way in preserving our existing affordable housing if we simply passed some sort of law to prevent landlords from dramatically increasing rents once a tenant moves out. Well, there's just one problem there. So Costa Hawkins is another California state law that passed in 1995, and it's directly related, as I mentioned, to the, the vacancy decontrol conversation. So it doesn't allow existing rent control laws to be strengthened, and it basically puts limitations on that. You know, lots of different tenant rights groups are working to repeal that law, and it's been 20 years since it's passed, and it's, I guess it's been one of the first times where there's been a lot more energy and trying to work to get rid of it, to strengthen current laws, and also to, to create new ones in cities you know, across L.A. County that don't have rent control laws. So let's dig into Costa Hawkins, because it's complicated. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks so. Costa Hawkins does three main things. First, it protects a landlord's right to raise the rent to market rate on a unit once a tenant moves out. Second, it prevents cities from establishing rent control, or capping rent, on units constructed after February of 1995. And finally, it exempts single-family homes and condos from rent control restrictions. Unfortunately, despite a huge progressive turnout in November of 2018 in California, Proposition 10 was voted down, the yes side having been outspent three to one by developers and landowners. They successfully convinced Californians that they didn't want rent control and that repealing Costa Hawkins would actually make the housing crisis worse. Prop 10 simply would have gotten rid of this restrictive law so municipalities could begin to have the conversation about new rent control laws and would have the ability to put it on the table as a possibility. But voters were hoodwinked into keeping this crazy law around. I mean, you know, the, the, the ways that the system is right now, uh, we're just losing uh, affordable housing stock all the time. I mean, the, this arbitrary, uh, this 1980 here, I think, 1979? Yeah. Um, uh, that being like the year uh, after which no housing can be rent controlled, I mean, it's a stupid law. 
So I definitely support its repeal. I think where a lot of the disagreement will come is what happens after. Uh, what do we do after that? A policy like universal rent control, I don't think uh, works without uh, vacancy decontrol. Or, or, or sorry, without um, getting rid of vacancy decontrol. I don't know what the opposite of it is. Uh, but without um, a system where the rent would stay deflated once people move. Because what happens if, you, if you're if you in a rent-controlled place for, I mean, this is what happened to us. We were paying artificially low rents for a really long time. Then you try to move, and everything is really, really expensive. At the same time, without vacancy decontrol if and universal rent control, if every unit is artificially low, I think you'll see mass evacuation from the rental market by landlords. Um, and so I think if, if we're worried about displacement, if we're worried about rentals being converted to condos, I think that's a great recipe for that happening. But in a perfect world, we don't need rent control. I mean, if with a, an adequate amount of like new construction at the, the level that people can afford, with a ton of subsidized housing, there would be no reason for rents to be skyrocketing as much as they are. Um, so I think rent control is often treating the symptom and not the cause, um, but I don't think that makes it any less uh, important. These two laws combine to give landlords great incentive to try to get rid of tenants living in rent-stabilized housing usually low-income and working-class people, but increasingly anyone. And yet a third California state law gives them the perfect cover to do so. So the Ellis Act is a California state law that was passed, I believe, in 2002. Um, and it was originally written to, to be a way for smaller building owners to basically leave the rental business. So what it allows is a legal eviction of your tenants based on removing your building from the rental market. So what we've seen a lot of is an abuse of the law, that it's not actually small building owners who are taking advantage of, of the law, but instead larger corporations, companies who are buying up the buildings and then able to legally you know, evict these, these tenants based on using the Ellis Act. Um, in some cases, illegally re-renting, in some cases, converting the units to Airbnb. The combination of these three laws, the Rent Stabilization Ordinance, Costa Hawkins, and the Ellis Act, leads to a lot of abuses, harassment, and low-ball buyout offers, usually taking advantage of the most vulnerable tenants in our city. Uh, in a place like Venice, which is where I do a lot of work, a lot of those low-income tenants are tenants of color, immigrant tenants, black tenants, working-class tenants, disabled tenants, you know, who have been in those buildings, you know, for decades in some cases. We see a lot of harassment um, to remove those tenants. We see a lot of buyout offers, um, which usually start at a low amount, let's say 3000 then they kind of keep going up. What we've seen is that a lot of folks leave their apartments in those conditions. One, because they don't know that they have the right to say no. And two, because they feel like maybe $10,000 is a lot of money. So part of the educational work that we're doing is that recognizing the value of their apartment and recognizing that $10,000 is not going to help anybody, <laughs> especially if they want to stay in a place that they've been in where their kids go to school, where, where they work. 
So if $10,000 is the buyout offer, and the tenant is already paying far below market rate, but in a neighborhood where market rate is upwards of $3,000 a month, $10,000 doesn't actually go that far. And the tenant will have a much harder time finding affordable rent in the future. For them to be legally removed from their apartment, they're actually a minimum that's like 19200 or something like that. So even, even though that minimum isn't enough, it's usually higher than what most people are being offered. And actually through a lot of pressure from different groups, including the tenants union, uh, the city council did recently pass like an additional protection for the rent stabilization ordinance that was specific to buyout offers. So now under the law, landlords are required to actually provide tenants with the information about what their rights are under buyout offers and what money they should be paid um, if they accept the offer. Though, I th you know, a major question is like, how is that enforced and what happens when it's not enforced? So it still feels a little, a little too weak, but it's definitely uh, helpful. Jennifer echoed these concerns when I asked her what kind of evictions she is seeing in her work as an eviction defense lawyer. Not only that the most vulnerable populations are those being illegally harassed and evicted, but also that the city is failing to enforce its own laws and the rights of tenants. In the places that I've worked, it's mostly I've helped low-income folks. And I think because it's a specific population that is facing evictions, I typically find that the impetus for the evictions in their places is because the landlord wants to make a more profit. Because these populations are vulnerable already because they're low income, some of them have like um, immigration status issues, etc. I think that oftentimes people don't know that they can fight or come from a culture where it's like, I don't really want to cause trouble. I just need, I'll, I will find somewhere else to live. And that's a lot of the evictions that I see. Like, people didn't know that you could, like, complain. People don't know you can go somewhere or someone will help you. So I had a case yesterday. Like, the fact pattern was this. It was my clients paid something in the 700 range for their apartment. They've been living there for 23 years. The new landlord came in and said, their rent was X, but that was an illegal rent increase. So my clients just paid whatever they were paying because they knew that's what they paid. And then, you know, also it was a situation where the landlord was like, you need to pay on the first, even though this family for the last 23 years had been paying on the 15th. So that was like, they didn't even have a reason to the, do the eviction. And I found myself in this situation where it's like, you just need to dismiss this case. And then they were like, oh, well, we'll dismiss it, but you have to agree that you're going to have them change their rent due date on the first. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. Why? Like, it's protected under rent control. I'm just annoyed even the fact that you're asking me to do something when you shouldn't even have filed this eviction. What if my clients didn't find an attorney? What if they didn't have an attorney? They would have just been kicked out. It costs thousands of dollars to file these evictions lawsuits. So it seems like a ridiculous gambit when there is no cause. But there is so much money to be made in housing that it's worth it to landlords like this. So then I looked up like who this landlord was and specifically their whole thing was like, 
we purchase property in urban neighborhoods and we want to make them better. But the whole language behind it is, but we want to make sure landlords get the like proper amount of money in their investment and like a return. So like it's just about people making money, really. It's easy to hone in and blame the housing crisis on one thing or another, but it's the combination of all of these dynamics that are making this such an intractable problem. Number one, LA is attractive, with a mild climate, lots of economic opportunities, and a rich cultural life. So there are lots of people streaming in, all the time. But the city itself is not dense. It was built as a collection of suburbs and still functions in that way. Secondly, Globally, real estate has been financialized and used as investment for the uber-rich, rather than being built to accommodate local market needs, which leads to an overabundance of luxury developments and a lack of affordable housing. Thirdly, people seek to preserve the LA lifestyle. Single-family homes with room for a garden out back and a pool, while still reaping the benefits of living in a city. Fourth, a series of California laws and the abuse of those laws makes it easier to displace vulnerable low-income residents and erode affordable housing. Finally, we live in a city with outdated community plans and housing departments that lack the resources to deal with these problems. And while it is tempting to think that housing should be like any other market force, subject to the laws of supply and demand, in truth, it's more like healthcare. Everyone needs it. You don't get a choice in the matter. If you treat it as a commodity, available only for those who can afford it, then for many people, displacement and ultimately homelessness is the only possible result. So what are the solutions? In the next episode of Paved Paradise, we talk about where we go from here. Many thanks to Betty Marin, Hike McMorian, Jennifer Ganada, Peter James, and Hayes Davenport for their interviews in this episode. If you're looking to get into the fight for affordable housing in LA, the LA Tenants Union is a great place to start, and I've added a link on our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com. Be sure to also check out LA Podcast, which Hayes hosts and is a great breakdown of Los Angeles policy and politics. Thanks, as always, to Mike Yank for composing the music for Paved Paradise. This is episode four of this six-episode series on housing in Los Angeles. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. It'll help other people find us. Thanks for listening and see you next time.